Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. And this week, I really struggled with the title of this message this week. And I wound up calling it, out with the old, in with the new, question mark. Um, And and the reason is because what we're going to see throughout this text is that uh, there's going to be, Jesus is going to be showing us kind of a lot of new things that have changed or that have come with his uh, coming to earth. Um, that, that, that with the coming of Jesus, there's a definitive discontinuity with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant. Uh, and there is also, at the same time, a continuity with the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. And so that's why I put that question mark in there. Okay, there's a, there's a discontinuity in that with the arrival of Jesus, everything changes. But there's also a continuity in that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the whole point of it was to point to Jesus, that, that, that he's coming, that the Messiah is coming. So it's all about him. It all points to him. And Jeremiah 31 that Lee read just a few minutes ago, all of that is based upon, it, it all rides on the Messiah coming. And so that's why I titled this message, Out with the Old, In with the New, question mark, because it's really yes and no. All right? it, it, it's not that the old has been jettisoned, but rather that it's been fulfilled. It's not just out with the old, in with the new. It, it's a fulfillment of it. And because it's been fulfilled, there are things then that under the old covenant are no more. Things that have been ended, things that, have, that are over now, and massive changes have taken place. Why? Because Christ has come. The Messiah has come. Jesus has been born. He's lived a perfect life. He's he's died a substitutionary death. And he's risen again in victory over sin and death. And that changes everything. And so it brings massive changes from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, to the New Covenant, to the New Testament. All right? A discontinuity, but there's also a continuity. And if you've got any background in church, you probably would be able to answer some of what what some of the major changes that have taken place between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some of those major changes. We don't offer sacrifices anymore, right? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice once for all time. We can eat shrimp now. We can eat lobster. Praise the Lord, bacon. Right? Because the ceremonial and the civil laws have been fulfilled. Right? So all of these changes have, have happened. Now, I want to chase a little rabbit first before we get into things as we talk about that ceremonial and civil law. Because sometimes in conversations as it relates to um, transgender issues, homosexuality issues, things like that, in, in these debates, people will, will lob these ignorant um, grenades at Christians saying that we are inconsistent in our observance of the Old Testament law and that we just pick and choose the verses we want to hold on to and enforce and ignore the ones that we don't want to hold on to and enforce. And so they'll they'll be like, well, if you're if you're going to hold to homosexuality as a sin, you, you better stop eating pork. You better stop eating seafood. You better start stoning adulterers and stop wearing clothes that are made out of Two different fabrics. If you're going to be consistent, you better stop doing all that. And so they'll trot that out, and you'll see it on Facebook sometimes. 
And people are like, boom, we just blew the Christians up. What are you going to do with that? And the only thing that got blown up was their right to speak in any way, shape, or form intelligently about the Bible or Christianity. Because they're proving that they have no idea what they're talking about with those statements. Because biblically and theologically, like if you actually read the Bible, you will see that there are reasons why we still observe some of the Old Testament laws and we don't observe other ones. And so let's just chase this rabbit real quick. I said ceremonial and civil a few minutes ago. You can divide the Old Testament law really into three groups. Civil, ceremonial, and moral law. Okay, you've got the civil laws, you've got the ceremonial laws, you've got the moral laws. I'm not going to go deep into this. You can grab a podcast from the summer of 2014 on Colossians 2, 16 through 17, where I did go deep into this, if you want to mine a little bit deeper. But you've got civil, ceremonial, you've got moral. And the ceremonial and the civil laws are kind of like temporary laws. These are the ones, don't eat shrimp, stone adulterers. These are temporary laws that, that pointed to Jesus, but with the coming of Jesus have been fulfilled and are no longer binding on us. So we don't observe those anymore. Why? Because Jesus came. The Messiah has come. All that they were pointing to has been fulfilled. So we don't observe those anymore. They are not binding on us anymore. They were temporary. But the moral law is and always will be binding because it's a reflection of the nature and character of God, which cannot change. His holiness, His sovereignty, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His grace, His justice, all of these things, His faithfulness, they cannot change. The nature and character of God cannot change. And so the moral law, which is a reflection of that, never changes, never shifts. It is and always will be binding. And it has always been. Even before the Old Testament law was handed down, the Ten Commandments were handed down uh, to Moses and the children of Israel as they've made their way out of Egypt. Long before that, the moral law was in place. That's why Cain and Abel, it's called sin when he kills him. The moral law has always been in place, so it is and always will be binding. But the civil and ceremonial laws were temporary things. And so it's not a random picking of this and picking of that. It's based upon the fact that Jesus has come. The Messiah has come. He's fulfilled those laws. And so for Christians to go back and observe the ceremonial and civil laws would be for us to deny Jesus and say that his sacrifice was not sufficient. And so it's a fundamental theological bedrock truth of Christianity as to why we observe some Old Testament laws and we don't observe others. And so that's why those grenades are just so ignorant that you're speaking about things that you don't know about. So pick up the Bible and read it and then talk to us and we'll have a little conversation and you'll see that there's reasons behind all of this. All right, so the moral law of God is eternal, unchanging. It's a reflection of who he is. The civil and ceremonial were temporary things pointing to Jesus. He's come, so it's no longer binding. Why? Because he's come. It's changed everything. Now, so back to the ranch, off that little rabbit trail. Again, many of us could probably list off what some of these changes are that have taken place since Jesus has come. We don't sacrifice anymore. We eat shrimp, all those sorts of things. 
But in our text this morning, we're going to see three um, changes that maybe wouldn't be the first three that pop on our mind, but are vital to our life of seeking to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. So that's what we're going to explore this morning. Three vital changes that Jesus brings. And so the first one I'm going to take a look at is this. Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. So let's pick it up. Chapter 5, verse 33. Here we go. And they, being the Pharisees, said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And so what, what's going on here is we've got a continuation going on of, a, of what began in verse 17. All right, when you go back to verse 17, Jesus is teaching. The Pharisees hear these teachings. So a whole slew of them show up to this house where he's teaching. Uh, he says, I'm God. They don't like that. He proves it by healing a paralytic. He gets done healing the paralytic. And then he goes and calls a traitor named Levi to be also known as Matthew to to follow him. All right. And he's a he, he he's a, a Jewish traitor and he's kind of a Enron on steroids level of a crook. So Jesus calls him and go, then goes to a party at his house where there are other crooks and there's other thieves and there's prostitutes. And all of the uh, Pharisees are looking at this and they're outraged that Jesus would be eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors. And so in that section last week, they're criticizing Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners. And then in what we're going to be looking at today, they're criticizing Jesus for eating and drinking at all. They're saying good folks fast, Jesus. Good, godly people like, like us, we, we fast all the time. Why, why aren't you fasting like good people do, Jesus? Now, fasting is a good thing. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's actually only commanded one time in all of the Old Testament. All right, and that's on the Day of Atonement. It's talked about a ton, but it's only commanded for that one day. It began being observed more and more after the Hebrews returned from their exile to Babylon. They started having four annual feasts, and then there were people who would just uh, begin uh, having fasts to express penitence and grief and those sorts of things. But the command is there's only one in all of the Old Testament. But almost predictable, predictable. Uh, but almost forecasted, maybe. I don't know. Some, I told you, we're living out of boxes and suitcases. It's not, it's not all clicking today. But, but almost like forecasted or, or predicted, predictably. There we go. Praise the Lord. Predictably. The, the Pharisees. So they, they take this good idea of fasting and they make it like an extra biblical rule and requirement. If you want to be godly, if you want to be good, then you need to fast on Mondays and Thursdays all the time. That's what good people do. So they, they take, here's this one Bible thing, they create a whole lot more around it. This is what legalists do. This is what uh, self-righteous people do. They make it a whole lot more than what the text actually says and so they say if you want to be a good godly Jew you need to fast every Monday and every Thursday and so that kind of that's what they set this up but the Bible doesn't say that 
They said that. And so for the Pharisees, life was just all about the external, just what could be seen, what was on the outside. So they created all these extra biblical traditions, all these extra rules to follow, many of which were good things. Fasting is not a bad thing. But it became just this kind of do these things, carry them out, and you will be good with God. Do these things, carry them out, and you will be good with God. And so it's just very much this false teaching idea of a paint-by-numbers relationship to God. Paint all the fours orange, paint all the, paint all, paint all the twos red, paint all the sevens blue, and if you do that, you'll have this perfect picture, and you'll be good with God. But it's all external. It was passionless. It was heartless. There was no love in it. There was no um, um, uh, desire in it. It was just a begrudging submission built on the false notion that that is what worship is. That true worship is, is beating yourself up and, and depriving yourself, and that shows God how serious you are about Him. But Jesus is coming in here kind of with a kind of with a uh, different strokes. What you talking about, Willie? He says, I didn't come. And Jesus is telling us he didn't come to, to bring sorrow and to bring gloom. He came to bring joy. He didn't come to bring melancholy and the infinite sadness, he came to bring joy. Joy is what will glorify God. That's why Pastor John Piper sums it up so well when he says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. That's what, bring God's, that's what brings glory to God. He's not glorified in our begrudging submission, our heartless, passionless, just walking through the motions. He's glorified in our love and our joyous desire of Him. That, that's how He set it all up. He gets glory, we get joy. It is a good, good deal. And so this is kind of the point that Jesus is making in verse 34. Look at it with me. Read verse 34 with me. So well, we'll just start in 33. And they said to Him, The disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And so the, the whole, like, have you ever fasted at a wedding? Now, I know some of you kind of, we, we almost do. The, the, the difference in time between the ceremony and the reception is getting ridiculous. And you wait for like two hours, and it's starving out here. You think it's a fast, but ultimately, you wind up not fasting, but feasting, right? That's what happens at a wedding. It is a feast. It is a celebration. You, you party. You celebrate. I mean, I think back to August 17, 2002. Sarah and I got married in Estes Park, Colorado. It was a great day. It was fun. Everybody's happy. Everybody's laughing, everybody's dancing, everybody's feasting, everybody's smiling. And what Jesus is saying is, my presence is like that. It is 
the, the bridegroom's here. You don't mourn. You don't be sorrowful and gloomy in the presence of Jesus. I came to bring joy, not that. That's why Psalm 16 says, in God's presence there's fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And we're commanded to Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And so Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. Okay, these guys are like, you need to be mournful, you need to be sad, Jesus. You need to fast like us and show God through your begrudging submission and just beating yourself up how devoted you are to him. And he's saying, no, 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 no. God's most, I'm going to, Piper says this, but I'm going to put it in Jesus' words for this. God's most glorified in you when you're satisfied in him. Find your joy in me, Jesus says. And that will glorify God. That's what most glorifies. So Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. In his presence is joy. But he also mentions that there will be a time when he's taken away. And then they will fast in those days. This is the first hint in all of Luke's gospel about the coming death of Christ. That he's going to die on the cross in our place for our sins. Lay down his life as a sacrifice. What we should pay the debt we owe for our sin, Jesus is going to pay it for us. This is the first hint in all of Luke's gospel about that. But the sorrow and the fasting that happened at the cross, it gave way three days later to what? Joy. At the resurrection. And then 40 days later, at the ascension. Christ being seated at the right hand of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And Jesus has promised that he will be with us to the end of the age always. His presence will be with us through the Holy Spirit. So we have that right now. But even that's just an appetizer. Like We are filled with joy in Christ. His presence is with us right now, but not like it will be when he returns someday. You've got this, I'm going to give you a kind of a theological term here. You've got this already, not yet paradigm. We are already filled with the Holy Spirit. We are already have the presence of Christ with us. We already have the joy of Christ, but not yet fully realized like it will be. There's this already, not yet paradigm going on. And so, yes and amen, we say, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, Come. But even now, it's already, but not fully yet, but just with the already. If you're in Christ, you've been saved. You've been adopted into the family of God. And you are loved by our heavenly Father. And He delights in you. Zephaniah 3 tells us He sings over us. So we've been saved, we're bound for glory, we've got the presence of Christ with us right now, and so even now we live in joy. That's why the great reformer Martin Luther rightly stated, a Christian should and must be a cheerful person. If he isn't, the devil is tempting him. Now, it doesn't mean there's not going to be dark days. There's not going to be 
It does not mean that there's not going to be dark nights of the soul. Those things are going to happen. Some of the greatest Christians of all time battled deeply with depression. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, hugely, hugely battled with depression. So it doesn't mean there's not going to be dark nights of the soul and difficult days. But there is a joy that overweighs those things. That there is coming a day when we will be united with Christ. He will return or we will pass away and be with Him. Whichever happens first. There's coming a day and as we sang, there will be no more tears. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more sin. There will be no more death. Those old things have passed away. New has come in all its fullness. We've got newness now. But it's an already not yet. We already have it, but it's not yet fully realized that it will be one day. Jesus came to bring joy, and so there should be some vitality in our life, some smiles in our life, some joy in our life, even amongst the temporary difficult days. And so Jesus came to bring this joy, and it's a joy that's ever-expanding. All right, so that's number one. First change we're going to talk about. Second change, Jesus came, and this is right in line, Jesus came to make us new, not reform us. He came to make us new, not like remake us and clean us up. He came to make us new. Look at verse 36 with me. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that there, there's something new that has taken place because he's here. He's arrived on the scene. And so he hasn't come, as one preacher put it, to patch up their tired old ways of being good enough for God. He wasn't there to stay separate from sinners or keep one of their grumpy old fasts. He was there to celebrate free forgiveness with the sinners that he came to save. He was there to celebrate that and hand that out. And so Jesus is not a patch-up plan. He's not an add-on to life. You don't just grab and try to patch Jesus onto your life. He doesn't mix and match with man-made religion can't just take a little Jesus and take a little bit of this and kind of put them together. No, he's all-consuming. He can't be an add-on. He can't be bottled up and contained within the confines of your old way of life. See, the joy of Christ is ever-expanding. I think that's part of what Jesus is getting at with this whole deal about the wineskins. Like when you slaughter a goat and skin it properly... It's watertight, and it's got some elasticity to it when it, when it first happens. So I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about my friend Dan, who, um, when we were talking about leprosy, who one summer went remote play, remote village in Ethiopia, worked with the Gumu peoples, and, and uh, <clears throat> many of them were lepers there. Well, when he prepared at the end of that semester to come home, they had a celebration for him. And so they slaughtered a goat and a cow. They made him slit the throat on the goat. Uh, and then they skinned everything. They ate the goat. They ate the cow, fed the whole village. I mean, this is a ton of money to, the, to these 
people, and they took the cow and they made him a drum. All right, now he was leaving like three days later. Not enough time for that thing to properly cure and be taken care of. So he brings that thing home, he puts it in our apartment, and it starts rotting. And it reeked. Like when you can smell something in a college dormitory of boys, like there's a boy smell, just a boy stink. And when you can smell that, you know it's bad. So this thing started rotting or whatever, but when you do it right, when you, when you skin it properly, it's watertight and it's got some stretchability to it at first. And so when you put wine into it and the wine starts fermenting, it can expand as the gases build and the pressure builds. But if you try to do that in an old wine skin that's already stretched out as much as it's going to be, it's just brittle. You start The gases start building, the pressure starts building, boom, it's going to split, the wine's going to spill, and the wine skins are ruined as well. And so what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and us is that you can't try to contain Jesus and bottle him up to just your old way of life. He busts through that. He's too good for that. His joy expands. So the life of a disciple is not trying to bottle Jesus up into a set amount or, or just patch him on to the side. He came to bring joy and a joy that is expanding, that can't be contained. Whether your old life was religious or irreligious, Jesus came to make us new not reform us, to give us a new container, to give us a new bottle, to give us not just a patch to add on, but the newness of who he is, the whole kit and caboodle. He clothes us in new clothes of righteousness. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. You're new. You've been made new. You're not who you once were. I am not the Joseph Siegel I once was. I'm a new creation in Christ. We saw this picture last week when we baptized Tony. And so number one, we talked about Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. Jesus came to make us new, not just reform us. These are all changes that have taken place because Jesus has arrived. And then thirdly, Jesus came to free us from our treadmill of futility. Jesus came to Free us from our treadmill of futility. Look at verse 39. We'll actually go back and pick it up in 36 just so we get the whole thing together. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now, there's kind of a cultural deal right here we've got to understand that does not match our culture today. So we've got to dig into this a little bit. Today, if you want wine, you want vintage Right? You want old stuff. You want stuff that's had a while to, to be in the barrels or whatever it's made in. You, you want 
old stuff, several years ago. You don't want the new stuff. But in the Bible, new wine represented like joy. It was an expression of exuberant joy. So for today, like the old stuff is better, but here, new wine expresses joy. And so what Jesus is trying to, the point he's trying to make here is that he offers new wine, this joyous salvation to any and all who will believe. But there are many of us who are not willing to taste and to see that the Lord's new wine is good. Just unwilling to let go of our old way of life. Some of us unwilling to let go to the point that we completely refuse Christ. Others of us unwilling to let go to the point we just want to keep him bottled up. Where we can contain him and got our little Jesus right here. We'll add him on to our life. Stay, stay over there. Stay in that corner. I want my part. But we want a little bit of Jesus. Just unwilling to let go of our old way of life because our whole sense of security and identity is wrapped up in it. And so we buy into this treadmill of existence where we just think, if I could just get a little more, then I'll be happy. If I could just get a little more, like if I had a little more networking and knew more people and had more opportunities, I'd be happy. If I had a little more notoriety in my workplace, I'd be happy. If I had more accolades at work, more clients, more this, more that, then I'll be happy. If if I expand the business, if I grow the business, I'll be happy. If I had, you know, more um, um, likes on Facebook for some of us, uh, then I'd be happy. If I had more money, if I had more toys, if I had more clothes, if I had nicer cars, on and on and on, and more appreciation for who I am and what I do, then I'd be happy. And it's this treadmill of futility because, like, think about it. We... we we're so warped in our thinking that we think that if we could just get more of what already doesn't satisfy us, then we'd be satisfied. Now, you're not satisfied with what you have, so if I could get more of what already doesn't satisfy, then I'll be good. Well, you, what, you get more. Well, now I want more. You see what I'm saying? It's this treadmill, this futility, this treadmill of futility. Just round and round and round it goes. I could just get more. If what doesn't already satisfy me, I'd be satisfied. But Jesus has come to set us free from that. To help us see that it, it, the treadmill just goes round and round. It doesn't lead anywhere. It will not satisfy us ever. And we can never get enough stuff, whatever that stuff for you is, to satisfy you, ever. Because what is missing and what we ultimately crave, though sin has blinded us to it, is God Himself. We were created for Him. We are hardwired for Him. Sin blinds us to this. So we seek fulfillment in every God replacement we can create Every idol we can manufacture in the idol factory of our hearts. But ultimately, all of that is to drive us. There is something 
more. There's something missing. There's got to be more than this. What is it? It's Christ. And you can spin on the treadmill of futility all the way to the grave. Or you can get off of it. You can take Christ's offer you to get off the treadmill of futility and find the satisfaction that can only be found in Christ, not in all these little trinkets and toys. C.S. Lewis uh, preached a series of sermons called The Weight of Glory during World War II. They aired them on uh, the radio uh, in England uh, during the Blitzkrieg and all of these things. You can uh, get a book, Weight of Glory, I put it in your resources and read the sermons that they aired over the airwaves during that time. But in one of them, in kind of a driving point of a lot of what he stated, we summarize in this. Here, here's a famous statement he said, and man, it is true. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition Infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Jesus came to bring joy, not sorrow. So don't buy into the lie of a joyless Christianity. Jesus came to make you new, not just reform you. So don't try to just patch Jesus onto your life or bottle him up in the old wineskin of your life. And he came to set you free from the treadmill of futility. So get off of it. There is joy, there is newness, and there is freedom in Christ. Taste and see that the Lord, the new wine, is really, really good. Let's pray. Father, as, we, as I prepared this message, and as I thought through this message, and as this message impacted me, I found that too often I found myself thinking about people who ha have not yet received Christ. The Lord, I'm the one. I'm the one who so often, as a believer, seeks to bottle you up. Seeks to treat you as an add-on, as a, as a patch I add on. I'm the one who too often does not remember the joy that is set before me. Coming kingdom. I'm the one that too often jumps back on to the treadmill of futility. And instead of finding my joy in who you are and who I am in you, my identity there as your child, I seek to find it in other things. Trying to just give more of what already doesn't satisfy, then I'd be happy. 
So, Father, I ask you to forgive me of this. And help me to be freed as I trust in who you are and what you've done. And renew my mind daily on your word and what you've said about yourself and what you what that then therefore means about me. And so, Father, for those of us in this room who are believers, let us not think, oh, non-believers should hear this. Let us examine our own hearts, especially as we come to the Lord's table, to your table. For those of us in this room who are not yet believers, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would open their hearts to taste and see that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. That they would not just say, what I've got is good enough. The old's good. I don't want anything else. They would not be satisfied with their mud pie in a slum. As we come to the holiday of the Lord. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.